It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Podcast where we are moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book Lighthouse Faith. Well, you've no doubt heard of critical race theory um, and feminist theory, a queer theory. There are a plethora of what's called high theories that try to define and critique the structures of particularly Western culture. You know, it's a culture that usually, you know, liberals will see as oppressive and heavily misogynistic. So here's a question Why don't we have biblical critical theory? To critique the culture, you know, according, uh, you know, or, or through the Bible. Well, in fact, that book now exists. It's called Biblical Critical Theory, How the Bible's Unfolding Story Makes Sense of Modern Life and Culture. And Christopher Watkins, Watkin is the author, and he joins me now. Welcome. It's great to be here, Lauren. Well, obviously, you hear the accent. Um, you're actually a professor of French studies at Monash University. That's right. In Melbourne, Australia. I mean, what are you doing writing a book on <laughs> biblical critical theory? I suppose it's the first question you need to ask, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Let's, let's, let's deal with the yeah. elephant in the room here, yes. Yeah, absolutely. So um, my own undergraduate degree was, was French and German, really heavily literature and philosophy focused course. So week after week, we were getting thrown you know, books by, by Marx and Freud and Nietzsche and Derrida and Foucault to, to write essays on. And I, I loved it. You know, they were asking all the big questions of life. What's the meaning of life? Yeah. And, and also at that time, I'd, I'd recently become a Christian. And at my church, week after week, we were being told to study the Bible seriously and read it slowly and apply it to the whole of life. And so I was, in a sense, caught, I suppose, between these two worlds. How, how do I get a conversation going between the theorists that I was studying in my right. university course and, and the Bible that I was reading, you know, each morning and at, and at church on Sunday? And I, I think that the biblical critical theory is the end of a long, long journey that started with that question, mm-hmm. what have these two got to say to each other, uh, and um, went via the, the first Bible overview that I ever did, um, which uh, I'm sure I'm not the only one to say really blew my mind, the idea <laughs> that there's one coherent, multi-layered, complex story that the Bible's yes. telling from beginning to end. I'd never... Never known that before. And and then when it was all presented to me, that was so rich and wonderful to think that that's a story that it, it isn't just one more story that's told within reality, but it's, it's a story in which to live and that makes sense of reality. So that was a key step. And the second key step into working out what on earth might happen if we bring these things into conversation was reading Augustine's City of God mm. and, and what he does magisterially is is what I very falteringly and imperfectly am trying to do in the biblical critical theory book. So he takes the whole, almost literally the whole of late Roman culture. It's it's games, it's pastimes, it's politics, it's it's religion, it's militarism, and and he reads it through a biblical lens. He critiques it through the lens of the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and that was a real penny drop moment for me. Mm. Oh, that's what it looks like to do critical theory from a biblical point of view. And so what I'm trying to do in the book is to, to use my knowledge of, of late modern Western culture to do 
to, to follow the same path that Augustine was traveling for late Roman culture. Well, it's absolutely fascinating. And, you know, one of the one of the problems with our culture today is that the default mode reaction to the Bible is negative. Like, I, I was listening to, a, you know, late 20-year-old kind of Gen Z kind of person say, well, you know, it was written by men. You know, so, of course, that means that you can't rely on it. I mean, and this is the default mode of a culture's reaction to the Bible. Why do you think that is? I think that would be a fascinating question for a sociologist. I, I think <laughs> I think Christians are not not exempt from that, aren't we? We we often react to culture knee jerk in a in a very negative way. Like our first reaction when we see something out there in the culture is, "What's wrong with this?" Mm-hmm. And I suppose that's the same reaction that people are having to the Bible. But I think that the Bible itself gives Christians a really rich foundation from which to go out and be cultural critics that that don't do that. So the reason being, for the Christian, only God himself is utterly and absolutely good, not, not, not a shadow of evil in him. Right. And he's not part of this world. And, you know, Christ says only God is good. And only the devil is utterly and absolutely evil. And none of none of us, neither you nor me, thank goodness, nor, nor anyone else is a devil. <laughs> and so everything in in the world of human culture, whether it's people or movements or, or pieces of art or novels, there's going to be at least some faint shadow of God's good creation in it because it's not the devil itself. But right. there's also going to be something that's wrong or misunderstood or partial or twisted because only God is good. And so a Christian goes out into the world of culture predisposed to think whatever I come across is going to be a mixture. Now, not all mixtures are the same. It's not all 50-50. Right, But right. there's going to be something that's a faint shadow of God's good creation everywhere. And there's going to be something twisted even in churches and, and Christian structures. And I think that gives Christians an unusual openness to engage with the whole of culture in a discerning, thinking, critical sort of way, rather than dismissing anything out of hand. Now, the problem is, if you find your measure of what's good and evil within this created order, then some things have to be off um, off balance sheet for your critique. So, for example, if I think that that the, the way that I see the world is is that the, the bourgeoisie, for example, are fundamentally the problem with society, and what we need is an bourgeoisie. Then now that's now that's a word that a lot of young people just don't even <laughs> they don't even know what that means. Okay, the bourgeoisie, which is basically middle class, you know, the upper Whitley mobile, yeah. new money, the landowning classes, absolutely. Yes, yes. Um, if I think they're the problem, and what we need is the uprising of the proletariat, then I'm going to have to have to have a closed mind to critiquing that framework itself, otherwise. I've got no reference for good or evil anymore. And similarly, if I think that that regulation is the problem and free markets are the solution, then I can't critique that framework itself. Otherwise, I've got no measure for what's good and evil anymore. So the Christian has almost a unique openness to engage with anything in culture, discerningly and discriminatingly. Not that we have to reject everything or accept everything, but there's there's that openness that comes from only God being good. You know, a, a lot of people, most people have not read the Bible all the way through. Most Christians have not read the Bible all the way through, and they don't read it daily, um, which is also a problem. So they don't understand that there's a narrative. There's a beginning and a middle and an end. There is a narrative that begins in Genesis and ends in Revelation, um, and that it's a cohesive narrative uh, that applies to our lives. Um, it is both descriptive and prescriptive, right? It, it describes what happens, but it also 
is prescriptive saying this is what you should do. But not everything is prescriptive. And so people kind of mix and match that kind of thing. How do you go about applying it to the structures of our culture? Like, you know, things, let's take a very, very, let's take narrowness. Let's, I mean, let's just apply it to um, education. when, When you look at education, let's look at education through the biblical narrative. Absolutely. So I think that the distinctive thing about a Christian who comes to culture, uh, you know, she wants to to critique it from a biblical point of view, is that the the filter that things go through is this creation, then fall, then redemption, then consummation narrative of the Bible. That's that's the simplest way, you know, Mm -hmm. four words to Mm -hmm. describe the whole Bible. Right, right. Creation, fall, redemption and consummation. And so... It, when you're looking at something like education, you, you think, how do all of these four moments of the narrative relate to it? So creation, we're created in the image of God. We're not information processing machines and we're not profit making machines either. There's an anthropology in being the image of God. There's a real dignity. Human beings matter. Right. Um, and so you, right off the bat, you're looking for an education system that, that understands what human beings are and and puts the the dignity of human beings at the center that they're not a means to an end beyond them um but then also you're moving on to to the fall human beings without exception including those devising the education system are um, messed up we don't understand things properly we've got our own sinful desires that get in the way of everything Um, and so you're not therefore going to simply have an education system that the only thing that it does is try to free people to express whatever's inside themselves because we know that that's mixed. There's there's some wonderful, beautiful, um, amazing, enriching thoughts inside myself, but there's also some pretty ugly stuff as well. And it's creation and fall working together that gives you that complex idea of the human being. So, you know, it's neither an education system that's just going to terrorize us into being obedient as if the only thing that ever happened were the fall, Mm -hmm. nor is it an education system uh, that simply wants to get out of the way so that we can express whatever's inside us because there's creation and fall. And then redemption, uh, I think, adds, adds on to education, that the glorious, wonderful truth um, that uh, nobody uh, is ever beyond uh, being uh, uh, restored to Christ. And, and this, I think, is an incredibly scandalous truth today. You know, we love we love creating monsters, don't we? Yes. And animals. You know, back in our my parents' generation, it was probably Adolf Hitler. And it, it sort of moves right. on. Every right. generation has its monster. You know, everyone can be redeemed, but not them. Mm. Um, and, and I think the idea that, you know, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Um, and there are no exceptions. There are no footnotes on that verse. Uh, makes the education system incredibly hopeful for everybody. You know, regardless of, of socioeconomic condition, regardless of whatever baggage people might bring into the education system, I think it provides a really robust and concrete hope. Not a sort of pie in the sky, let's just cross our fingers and hope that we can make the best of this, but, but, a, but a real grounded sense um, that everybody can change right. without exception. Um, and then consummation, I think, gives you um, hope for a, a final justice um, and uh, a, a final uh, joy at seeing God face to face. And so you put all of those together. And I think w- one conclusion is that it's not a, it's not a one-sentence education system. It's, it's this biblical narrative draws out a complexity in education and in everything else that you run through those filters. So how, is, how are the, 
the other high theories that we're talking about, you know, critical race theory and, you know, queer theory and feminist theory, how are they not working in our behalf? Um, well, I think as well, yeah, on the principle that, that, that I enunciated in response to the last question, you'd want to say a little bit more than, than, than simply they're not working on our behalf. You'd expect, so you, you come to one of these theories, let's, let's take the, the thought of Michel Foucault, who's someone that I, I know reasonably well. Um, you would expect as a Christian to find in his thinking uh, some things that are insightful about human mm -hmm. nature and, and society and culture, and also um, some things that are that are misguided or that misunderstand human beings. And, and I think that's what we find. And so, you know, Foucault, for example, um, I think quite helpfully points out the way in which relations of power are not everything that there is in the world, but they, they run through everything. They, they present themselves in all different sorts of context. Um, and, and I think he, he sensitizes people to, to, to be on the lookout for those. Um, now, I think Christians would want to um, question his, his anthropology. I, I think like most philosophers, he, he his anthropology is just too simplistic. Like the biblical narrative gives you this, this rich, layered sense of humans as created in the image of God and fallen and, and to, can be redeemed in Christ and then, you know, finally to, to have a, a, an eternal destiny. And, and I think time and again, what different philosophies and, and critical theories in the world do is they take a little bit of that story mm -hmm. and they get rid of the rest of it. They dismember it from, mm. from, from its biblical context and they make that little shard of the story into the whole truth. So, so for example, there are you know some theories that say human beings are simply fundamentally good, and it's society that messes us up. So society needs to get out of the way and just let us be ourselves. And that's sort of a as if creation were the only chapter in the Bible way. You know, other uh, theories, um, less so these days, but but more so in the past, would say you know human beings are just simply fundamentally recalcitrant and selfish and evil, and the only way to deal with them is to punish them and to frighten them into obedience. Um, and again, that's taking a tiny bit of the Bible story, ripping it out of all context, ripping it out of the, the complementary truths that are in the Bible and pretending that it's the only truth about human beings. And so what I found is, as I've engaged with these different theories time and again, um, that the Bible always comes out richer and more complex and more nuanced than they are. Oh, my goodness. This is really, you call this the so what of the Bible. I mean, it's like, okay, so I'd go to Bible study or I, you know, learn the Bible's Ten Commandments. I do, I learn the, but it, this is the, so what? You know, what is, so the Bible is rich. It's like an owner's manual. I think that's right. We, my own experience of growing up as a Christian was that I was, I was trained quite well, not that I always took it on board, but the, the, yeah, tra right. the training was there in, in what the Bible said, what to believe. And, and I was trained quite well in, in why I ought to believe that, what the reasons were to, to, to justify those beliefs. I, I'm not, not sure that the training was quite so full in, in the so what question, you know, so, so the, the Bible has this view of the world and of human beings and of, of life and, you know, the universe and everything. What does that mean for culture? What does it mean for art? What does it mean for education? <laughs> you just asked me, what does it mean for society? Um, and I guess that was, that was where I was wanting the book to land, because I think that's one area where Christians in recent years perhaps haven't done quite as much thinking as we might have done. Yeah, I want to take a break right now on the Lighthouse Faith Podcast. We'll be right back to, uh, with Christopher Walken talking about his book, Biblical Critical Theory. We'll be right back.
The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. And we're now back with uh, Christopher Walken talking about biblical critical theory and applying it to our Western culture. You know, one of the things um, you talk about um, is... This false cultural dichotomy that, uh, and I stop me if I get this wrong, but this is what you, that the culture, the secular culture, will use Christian values and understanding and justice, but never really apply, never really give the value to Christianity. I mean, or explain to me this sort of false dichotomy. Yes, I. There's been a couple of books recently that have really laid out this this argument um, at, at great length. There's, there's Tom Holland's Dominion and then Glenn Scrivener wrote a book called The, the Air We Breathe. And what they're both arguing in, in those books, now I, I think persuasively, is that so many of the values that our society holds dear today and that, that it uses to identify itself, that it's proud of freedom, equality, um, and so forth, are are originally brought into our tradition through Christian thinkers and, and grow out of a biblical soil. Um, if you think about the, the way in which today uh, emancipation is such a, a powerful vector mm-hmm. in society, how we want to be liberated from all sorts of different oppressions, uh, often quite rightly so, um, that that would have been a very, very odd thought in an ancient society such as Babylon. But what happens is that the... Um, the God of the Hebrews brings his people out of slavery in Egypt. Um, And suddenly the idea of the importance of slaves being freed is is brought into the tradition. We're given a way of thinking about that, a vocabulary to talk about that. And liberation, this is a a book by um, John Coffey who's wrote at length about this, Uh, liberation becomes really socially valuable. And and we've we've breathed that air. We we live in that atmosphere. And so for us, to be freed is something that we covet and desire. But it's far from clear that that would be the case had not Christianity, Judaism, and then Christianity built up this idea of, of salvation as a freeing and the exodus as a freeing from slavery, for example. This is very fascinating because in your book, uh, in the introduction, I have to say, and I'm the full disclosure that I've not read the whole book, um, it's quite dense. But it, 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 but it, but it's accessible. It's not like it's you know not accessible. It is, but it's a long book, like six hundred pages, right, or four hundred, six hundred. I'm afraid it is. Yes. Yeah, six hundred. Um, but this idea that this theme is running throughout the Bible. We've brought out the big, you know, bullet point one, which is the liberation of the Hebrews from um, from Egypt. Yeah. But this theme is running throughout the Bible in little ways and big ways. Um, this is something you get when you when you read the entire Bible, right? Absolutely, yes. It's it's and and the the main event that's referred to from the New Testament perspective in the Old Testament is the Exodus. So this is this is foundational for the way that. Paul, for example, understands salvation. He's referring back to this paradigmatic event of the freeing of slaves from captivity. And the the modern 
social theorist uh, Jean-François Lyotard, the guy who wrote the, the postmodern condition, who came up with the whole idea of postmodernism, mm-hmm. um, has uh, in, in that book and the idea of what he calls the emancipation narrative. And his argument is that the, the idea of emancipation has taken over in modern society. We see ourselves and we understand ourselves fundamentally as those who are being progressively emancipated from a series of progressions. And that has all sorts of consequences. Uh, First of all, it means that we see ourselves as making progress. We're further on than previous generations. Uh, It also means that we've got to, in a sense, find oppressions continually to free ourselves from because that's our our identity. We understand ourselves as those who are becoming freer and freer. Um, And so I I think the the modern world has has really imbibed and also transformed and, and, and changed out of its biblical context this idea of liberation and emancipation and made it its own calling card. But it's also like you talked about, I mean, I, and I, I, this whole idea of false dichotomies is that the irony of freedom is that restriction actually creates freedoms. It, it is an uncomfortable truth, I think, yeah. for the modern world. And, and it's a truth, to be fair, I think that, that Christians as well find it sometimes hard to own up to the idea that, that freedom in, in one area uh, requires a concomitant restraint in another. So there's there's this wonderful verse, isn't there, rightly, you know, famous. We just had Martin Luther King Jr. Day here, you know, that he was, he mm-hmm. quoted, and, and people have quoted down the centuries, let my people go. You know, it's 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 the the anthem of, of liberation movements. It, it appears seven times in Exodus, and every single time, it's followed by words to the effect of that they may serve me. Let my people go that they may serve me in the desert. Mm. And the modern world... We forget, we, we only hold on to the let my people go. Yes, yes, absolutely. But the, the modern world hears let my people go and they think, hooray, that's that's our guy. <laughs> and then they hear that they may serve me. They're, oh, Christians being Christians again, you know, <laughs> enslaving themselves. But it's actually the truth of all liberation, I can only free myself in one area by constraining myself in others. So, for example, if I want to live my life utterly rationally and follow the principles of reason at every step, then I've got to, at certain points, park my desires or ignore my desires because mm-hmm. they, they're going to be all over the place. And they're sometimes going to clash with, with what I what reason would dictate. You know, the one classic example is I can't both eat three pizzas every day and win the Wimbledon tennis tournament. <laughs> I've got to choose. I can do one of those. I can be free to do one of those. Right. But that very freedom requires a constraint in the other area. And and I think all of these freedoms come with constraints. So the, the question is not, do I want to be sort of free in some abstract sense, but which constraint is the wise one to choose? And I think that's the point at which Christians say, I, I want to choose um, to submit myself to a Christ who would love me enough to die for me. Um, and who has proved through his faithfulness to his promises over the years that he has my best interests at heart. And I don't want to constrain myself to submit to, uh, to, to a market or a logic of profit that doesn't love me, to an institution that doesn't love me or necessarily have my best interests at heart, uh, or to any other of the, the sort of idols out there in society vying for our allegiance. Because I, I, I could try and submit to any of those and arrange my life around it. Um, but I, I think there's a real pathos in doing that and a real tragedy to, to commit our lives and submit um, to, to, to one who doesn't, doesn't love us. Yes. And, 
at every stage of our lives, we have to submit to something. I mean, Tim Keller brought, brings out that whole idea of restriction and, and freedom. He, uh, he relates it to musicians, you know, like world-class musicians who, you know, practice five or six hours a day. They must restrict their socializing or their ability to be with other people because they must practice. Mm. Um, but it frees them to play incredible music beautifully. Yeah. Um, and that's really the analogy is that we are we have this ability to sing beautifully or uh, do anything beautifully. Yeah. If we but we must submit to something. I think that's absolutely right. And it, it runs through the whole Bible, doesn't it? There's there's a passage, I think it's is it towards the end of Galatians, you know, you're keeping step with the spirit and don't gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And you can do one of those, but you can't do both of them. Right. You can't be free to do both at the same time. You've got to choose. And I think that the injunction to, to Christians is choose wisely. Don't just stumble into a choice. Think carefully about who or what you're serving and whether it it's gonna be worthy, in a sense, of, of, of that service and that allegiance. You talk about in the book how much culture shapes us, right? The culture is shaping us, and you, you give six figures, or I guess the ways, shapes, the, the way uh, culture shapes us. What are those? What are those? The, the premise is that we are being aggressively catechized from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep. Mm. Um, Culture is giving us a way, in, inducing us to, to form ourselves around a particular way of being in the world, whether it's the, the, the way that our smartphones make everything available to us. You know, I'm, I'm at the center of this universe and I can just with a couple of taps get any information I want, uh, whether it's the way that, you know, I, I choose what clothes I wear, I choose what television channel I watch, I choose how I get to work. All these choices, it's, it's inculcating in me a way of being in the world. Um, and Christians have sometimes thought that ideas drive all of that, intellectual concepts. And this is sort of the worldview idea. Mm -hmm. Everything is first of all an idea, and then it gets distributed in society. And then other Christians have pushed back against that and said, no, 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 that's a little bit too intellectualist. Everything is first of all a habit or a ritual, and then it gets sort of crystallized in ideas. And what I'm trying to do with these six figures is to say that the, the relationship between all the different things forming our lives is, is more complex than that. It's mm. not that everything's first of all an idea or everything's first of all a ritual, um, but there are uh, concepts and words. Words shape the way that we think. Um, there are indeed habits and, and rituals. Um, there's the way we think about space and time. Is time aligned with with progress gradually being made so that every generation is better off than the previous one. That's sort of what we've thought, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. probably up until the financial crisis and the yeah. climate crisis. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's really heavy that that is sort of changing now for the younger yeah. generations. Um, there's also objects around us, the way that they shape the way that we engage with the world. So smartphones would be one, but, you know, cutlery, everything, these tiny little messages we're being given from everything around us, live in this particular way, desire these particular things, um, covet this, uh, reject that. And, and often it's not, you know, a, a billboard right in front of our eyes shouting at us. It's, it's, 10,000 tiny little nudges every day. Right. And what, I, what I'm trying to do with this, this series of different figures, as I call them, is, is allow all of those a place at the table when it comes to deciding how we're formed to be the people we are by the culture around us. And you have to be aware that all of these things are around. This is very important because I think people operate without really understanding that they have the sort of default mode reactions to a world mm -hmm. 
that came from someplace else. Absolutely. And so I think one thing that the biblical critical theory is trying to do is make the familiar world around us just a little bit strange, like to help us to see it with new eyes. And the, the biblical paradigm for that, I think, is the book of Revelation and the amazing way, just the astounding way, in that book that John takes what would have been a familiar late Roman world to people, you know, just getting on, doing my life, living mm -hmm. my, you know, living with my family. And he, he uses such vivid language to talk about it. You know, this is Babylon. There is the beast and the heart and so forth. And, and it's really arresting. And I think what one thing that he's trying to do there is, is wake people up to see, I suppose, the ugly underbelly of the everyday and the ordinary and mm. the trivial. And, and I think that's a really important moment for Christians when we begin trying to pick apart what is what are the messages that society is giving me? What is the sort of person society wants me to grow up with? And, and how does that fit with a biblical view of who I am? Because society will never put it on paper for you. You know, right. it's never made explicit. It's always this sort of subliminal shaping and, and forming through all these tiny little messages in all these different ways that we receive each day. And if we're not aware of that, I, I think it, it's really hard to evaluate it and to decide whether we do want to be shaped in that way or not, because we don't realize that we are. You know, the irony is people talk about Jesus being this really wonderful teacher of love, right? But he talked about hell and damnation probably more than anything else. And in fact, when you analyze him in the wilderness and being tempted by the devil in these three basic areas are basically the three places where we live. Uh, you know, it's uh, who we bow down to, um, who um, and who we give authority to, um, you know, the false idols in our lives, you know, resist those. Uh, uh, and, you know, the idea that, you know, who's going to feed me? Who's going to, who's going to give me the bread? Mm. And the idea is that he's being tempted in the three areas that we all live in when he is weakest. Hmm. And that should send up uh, some red flags right there for us. That is fascinating, Lauren. I, I hadn't heard that passage talked about in that way before, but that is so compelling, isn't it? The different ways in which, um, you know, we're, we're, we're tempted to bow down and, and him being tempted when he's at his weakest. That, that is very thought-provoking. It is scary in the sense that if Jesus has is going to be tempted like this, and the, the very thing is that I always tell people, it's like, you know what, the fact that you believe in God is not really the issue, because the devil believes in God. The devil knows that God exists. It's, are you bowing down to that God? Are you bowing down to Jesus? Um, you know, Jesus asks Peter that very pointed question, but who do you say that I am? And I think another way of putting that is, who do you trust with your life? Mm -hmm. Like, do I trust my career to take care of me as a full human being? Do I, um, you know, trust my, my bank account? Do I, do I trust the, the things that I buy? Whatever it is, it's different things for different people. It's not career for everybody. Um, and and I, I, I think it's hard to come to any other conclusion as a Christian than I, I'm really quite foolish to trust anyone or anything with my life apart from a God who, who made me, knows me, and is so committed to me um, that he would die himself, you know, leave the glory of heaven, become um, obedient even to, to death on a cross for me. Like, no one else has done that. No one else has shown that commitment to me. And so I want to, if I'm going to trust anyone with my life, and I have to, uh, I want to trust him. 
Yes. Well, I want to thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. The book is called Biblical Critical Theory, How the Bible's Unfolding Story Makes Sense of Modern Life and Culture. Um, Christopher Watkin, thank you so much. The foreword is by Timothy Keller. Many people are, are, are Keller fans, so pick up the book for that reason only because if Tim Keller endorses it, you know it's good. Um, but believe me, um, this is something that if you're a serious Christian, you really want to understand you really have to understand that you are, um, as uh, what is it, uh, C.S. Lewis talks about, you're living um, in occupied country or something like that. I mean, you really are not living in a war, you're living in a, in a war zone. Yeah, absolutely. Or as the Bible says, you know, we, we're in exile. Yes. Here. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Christopher Walken. Thank you, Lauren. And love the love the accent too, of course. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad that I could oblige. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been Lighthouse Faith Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm Lauren Green. Have a blessed day. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.